I was thinking uh, a few months ago, uh, I saw on Facebook the, uh, the anniversary of uh, a buddy of mine, and uh, it brought back some memories because his wedding was the first wedding that I ever performed. Um, this was a buddy of mine from college, and uh, after we were out of college, I was here at, uh, at North Woodbury and had been there for a little while. He asked if I would come to Florida and if I would do his wedding. And it sticks out for a couple reasons. First, it's the first wedding I ever did. Second, it didn't count. Um, in Florida, you actually have to be ordained, and I wasn't. So the very first wedding that I ever did, we had to finish everything up, do the ceremony, and then sneak away and go around back and have a Justice of the Peace actually sign all of the papers. Um, I told him that as far as I was concerned, in God's eyes, when we were done, they were married, but um, the state does not recognize that, so we still had to take that extra step. But there's another reason that it sticks out to me. Because as I was doing the ceremony, and as I was talking and, and, uh, and walking through what God's idea of marriage was and taking them through their vows and everything, I remember the two of them kind of smirking a little bit and kind of giggling a little bit. I remember thinking, they're not really taking this seriously. Like, or, or you know, am I, is this, was this not supposed to be what I was supposed to do? Or because I let them see the service ahead of time. And, but it was almost like they had this, this joke between the two of them. And there were smiles on the faces of uh, the groomsmen and the bridesmaids. And after a little while, um, started to get a little bit worried about that. I feel the same way when I preach. If I look out and people, like, that's why I don't look at Sarah Wilson, who smiles all the time. Because if I look out and people are smiling or laughing when they're not supposed to be, I always figure that my fly is down or something like that. And so I always jump to, like, the worst possible conclusion. But we get done with the wedding, and we go in the back where the actual legal marriage took place, and um, my buddy reaches up, and he wipes something off my face. And then I get to see a bunch of pictures of me performing that wedding. And, and I, I'm pretty sure it was one of those uh, dandelions that you, the, the seed parts where you blow them and they I had a huge one right here for the entire ceremony and no one told me. And I just remember thinking, my first thought was I'm never doing another wedding ever again. This is embarrassing, um, which I got over that. But I remember thinking, why would you not tell me? And saying to him, I would want to know, you would want to know, why would you not tell me that? And I think that is one of the, the best marks of loving someone and the best marks of friendship if you're willing to point something like that out to people, to save them from embarrassment. My wife will always tell me, if I have something in my teeth, my wife will always point out, hey, you need to get rid of that right now. Or there are times where I'm up preaching and I'll see her down there going, or, you know, you, you got to take care of it. And she'll say, because that's what I would want someone to do for me. A mark of friendship, a mark of love, is treating someone how you want to be treated. And I told you a few weeks ago that we were going to come back to this verse. We're back in the book of Matthew. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been walking through the book of Matthew, and we've been going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount now for about the last two months. And we didn't have time. We kind of glossed right over it as we went through the entire uh, chapter, the entire chapter 7, uh, all in one piece, which is a lot to get through. And I told you we were going to come back to this one specific verse because this is a verse that is not just of importance. It is of the utmost importance. This is really a verse, and we're going to see in a moment, this is a verse that sums up Jesus' teaching. And so this is a verse, too, I think that most of us learn uh, before we even can read it for ourselves. And we know it as the golden rule. Listen as I read Matthew 7, verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. I want to start as we, as we look 
just at this one specific verse today. I want to start with a precedence for this verse. Because I want you to see, this isn't just something that Jesus tacked onto the end of this message that he was giving. This is the essence of the gospel. This is the essence of the good news. This is the essence of Scripture. This is not a new thought in Scripture. That phrase, the law and the prophets, would have been a a typical Jewish phrase that they would have used in that day to denote the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so when when you see this in the Bible where it says the law and the prophets, this is our Old Testament. So what he's saying here is, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you, because this sums up the entire Old Testament for us, Genesis uh, through Malachi. Now, I think Jesus does this in a few different places to help us, because sometimes we need, we need someone to get right to the point. Sometimes we can almost get information overload, and we need someone to just say, here's what it is. All right? It's the reason they invented cliff notes. But this doesn't invalidate the rest of the Old Testament. This doesn't in any way lessen the authority of God's Word or the rest of the Old Testament, saying somehow that this is more important and then you have everything else. No, this is simply the synopsis. If you want the main point, if you want the big thing from the rest of the Old Testament, this is it. Do to others as you would have them do unto you. All of the revelation to God, to, of God to mankind is about this. And I love the way that the message sums it up. And the message is a very loose paraphrase. If you're doing serious Bible study, I would not recommend going through the message. It is not completely accurate to the original Greek or the original Hebrew. But sometimes it captures the essence of a verse in a beautiful way. And this is how it puts Matthew 7:12. Here's a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do to you or for you. Then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and prophets, and this is what you get. I love that. But when Jesus says this here, this isn't the first time that we see this in Scripture. This isn't the first time this idea comes up. If you look back in the Old Testament, you go uh, to verses that we use often, like Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8. Micah, the prophet, says, look, it's not about sacrifices. It's not about just... uh, the outer trappings of worship. This is what God wants from you. He wants obedience, and this is what obedience looks like. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. What is the main idea right there? Do to others as you would have them do unto you. You see it modeled in stories like like Abraham and Lot, where Abraham allows Lot to choose the best land. He gives him the first choice, even though in that culture, Abraham was the man. It it was all on Abraham to make those decisions. But out of love for his nephew, he allowed him to do it. You see in the way that David treated Saul. Saul's pursuing King David, trying to kill him, trying to take his life. And again and again and again, David treats him with dignity. David treats him with respect. David treats him with love. David spares his life. These aren't random stories. These are reinforcing the heart of God. They're reinforcing the the heart of the totality of the Scripture message for us. And this isn't the only time in the New Testament that we see uh, this kind of idea or we see this truth. Look at the story of, of the Good Samaritan. That's due unto others. Or in the negative sense, when Jesus tells the parable of the man who had this immense unpayable debt. There was no way that he could ever pay this debt back. And yet the debt is forgiven, completely wiped clean. He's freed from out 
or freed out from under that. And then he turns around and refuses to forgive the small, inconsequential debt of someone that owes him. Again, that's the negative example, but it's the same principle. We're to do to others as we want them to do to us. And it's also not the only time that Jesus introduces this idea of uh, boiling down the law and the prophets, boiling down the Old Testament to its base form. If you go a little further in Matthew, Jesus uses this phrase again. In Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, which we're going to get to in, in a couple of months here. But when Jesus was asked about the most important commandment, this is what he says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, if you look at it, it can look like Jesus is giving us two different messages here. When in reality, what he's giving us is the what And he's giving us the how of the same thing. Two sides of the same coin. All of the Old Testament teaching, all of what's given to us in the Old Testament is teaching us how to love God and then how to show that love by loving our neighbors. Love God, love people. That's the what. And that's something you'll hear very often. In almost any church you go into, you'll hear the pastor say that over and over again. We're to love God, we're to love people. What Jesus gives us here in Matthew 7 is how to do that. Love God, love people. Well, how do I love people? You do unto them as you would have them to do unto you. By loving them as your own selves. There are very few uh, motivating forces stronger than self-preservation or stronger than self-advancement. We are to love others with that same kind of base level, gut level, instinctual love. By doing unto others in all circumstances, all others, as we would have them to do unto us, by treating them as we want to be treated. And I think sometimes, as Christians, we make this, we make this far too difficult. I, I think sometimes we can add to the gospel, and we end up with this, this convoluted idea of, of the lists and the profit, processes that we need to go through in order to be a good Christian, when honestly, if you look at what Jesus says right here, it's as simple and as easy, while at the same time, It can be hard, but it's as simple as being kind. It's as simple as showing love. It's as simple as extending grace. That's the message of the entirety of Scripture when it comes to human interaction. And I said it a couple weeks ago, and I don't think I'm overstating it when I say that if we could learn us individually— us as a church, and us as a church collectively, not just this local church. But if Christians could learn to actually apply this, if Christians could learn to actually live this out on a regular basis, I don't believe there's anything that would be as powerful to transform the church, to transform the city, the country, and to transform the world than if Christians began to treat others the way that they want to be treated. And if we truly understood the heart of God and and the heart of Scripture. So that's the precedence. You see this idea throughout. It doesn't mean when Jesus says it that it's only an Old Testament concept. Because again, then you see it lived out in the life of Christ. You see it taken further. The second thing that I want to look at is the placement of the verse. Remember, as Jesus is teaching 
this message here. As he's going through what we call the Sermon on the Mount, we have it broken down for us in our Bibles. We have it broken down by chapter and verse, and most of our Bibles have nice headings. You know, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And this one, in fact, has its own little heading, the golden rule, at least in my Bible, all by itself. One little heading, the golden rule, there it is. Now, as people were hearing this, but even in uh, the first instances of it being recorded and written down, they didn't have chapters and they didn't have verses and they didn't have subtitles and all those different things. This was one sermon, one coherent, very powerful sermon. And when we get to verse 12, in the Greek, you find a very interesting word that I found as I looked through different translations as I was going through this this week. Interestingly enough, gets left out of some translations, and I think very mistakenly gets left out of some translations. But it's the Greek word un. It's a very short word. It has a very specific purpose in Greek writing. This word implies the conclusion of a process of thought or reasoning. This is a word that's used to show that what follows after the word is the logical inference of what preceded it. In other words, it's a word that links the thought that follows to the bigger picture of what's already been stated. It's a word that can be translated so then or because of this, or most often is translated in our Bibles, therefore. And again, you've heard me say it many times. If you see that word therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. That means we have to look at the context. We have to look at what's around it. So if Matthew records this and he says, Therefore, so then, because of these things, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What is he referring to? If you look at the passage that has come, or that immediately precedes it, you see that Matthew has just written and recorded Jesus' teaching on uh, the Father giving good gifts. Jesus teaching on what a generous and good father that we serve. The father that stands ready to bless his children. So you could say, okay, well, that's just the conclusion of that thought. And it makes sense. We serve a generous God, and so it makes sense that we would want to mirror that generosity, and we would want to mirror that, that, that love in our lives. And if that's what you thought it was a conclusion for, I, you wouldn't get a, a ton of argument from me. But I do think it's a little bit deeper than that, and, and I think it's a conclusion to going all the way back to chapter 5 when Jesus begins his discourse, his Sermon on the Mount. I think this is the conclusion of the entire sermon. I think this is the takeaway. This is the action. This is the application. Everything that's just been taught, this is Jesus saying, okay, now here's what it looks like. Because Jesus has begun to go through how this kingdom is going to be different. All the way back in chapter 5 when we looked at the Beatitudes. All of those Beatitudes have to do with humility, have to do with treating other people better than yourselves. And then he goes through things like, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. Uh, he tells us that we are to forgive, we're to not judge, we're not to divorce, we're to give to the poor, we're to pray, we're to love our enemies, we're to be generous we're to react in love when we're not treated fairly. All of those things, how do you sum all that up? Do unto others. And so everything that he's given to us in the Sermon on the Mount can be summed up with that verse. Everything that Jesus wants the people to know about this new kingdom that's coming and that will eventually be perfected in eternity, the kingdom of God, this is what separates the kingdom of God. And for those of us that are part of the kingdom of God, those that have given their lives to Jesus Christ and accepted in faith the free gift of salvation that comes through that, 
This is the mandate and the call on each and every one of our lives. Do unto others. The next thing I want you to see is the principle itself. I want to look at a couple things that, that set this principle apart. This idea that we know as the golden rule has a very ancient and a very diverse pedigree. This is a rule that really has been a staple in some form or another in nearly every uh, religious group, every religious idea, uh, really most what we would call civilized cultures have had some semblance of this rule that they adhere to. And though the wording may vary, there's versions of the rule that have been found in Confucianism and Buddhist literature and ancient Indian literature and ancient Greek literature, even in ancient uh, Jewish literature outside of the Old Testament writings. This seems to be a very common sense principle. I had someone argue with me uh, just a couple weeks ago about the golden rule specifically. Because of the fact that the golden rule is found in so many other religious writings and, and so many other cultural writings, they said it's proof that the Bible simply stole it from other writing, and therefore the Bible is not inspired and is not God's infallible word. Uh, that seemed like a huge leap to me, and I'm not sure of the—I'm not a philosopher, but I'm not sure of the logical integrity of that thought train. But as I thought about that, okay, what does it mean that this is common sense? What does this mean that so many other people would, would have this idea in their mind that, okay, we're supposed to treat people well. We're supposed to treat people the way we want to be treated. I drew a much different conclusion. I believe the fact— that there is a longing in the hearts of men to see this principle played out is proof to me that we're created in the image of God. And that even those that don't know him by name acknowledge that his way is the right way. His truth is the right truth. And this may be common sense, but I think then you have to ask yourself, well, where does common sense come from? The God who created each and every one of us, the God who knit us together in our mother's wombs, created us with a longing to know the truth. And I think much of what gets labeled as common sense is evidence of that. Now, because of sin, we've made an absolute mess out of the search for truth. But it doesn't change the fact that God's truth is the only truth. And I think you see that reflected throughout creation. So if this is a principle that we share to some degree with many other belief systems and many other cultures. What is it that sets this one apart? What is it about the words that we see here in Matthew 7, 12 that separates this call, this mandate, this command in our lives from any command that went before it? There's a few different things that we see. First, and I think this one is hugely important, and it can get a little... I'm going to try to explain this the best that I can. All right, this can get a little bit confusing, I think. But first, it's different because of the motive behind it. It's different because of the motive behind it. Almost without exception, the golden rule that's found in other religions and cultures is stated in the negative. It's stated as, do not do to others what you would not like them to do to you. The clear motive is to avoid personal pain. The clear motive is to avoid bringing trouble upon yourself. Don't do those things that you don't want people to turn around and then do to you. 
to bring pain to your life. And I think we can fall into this trap. I think we can fall into this trap as parents. Those of you that still have kids at home that are still in the process of disciplining your children, we can almost slip into this way of thinking. When I had to discipline my little daughter, Olivia, um, I don't remember when it was or which time it was, um, but she had just hit her brother, William, not Ethan. That wouldn't have ended well for her. She hit William, and I remember saying to her, don't hit William because you don't want him to hit you. Don't hit him or, or it might happen to you. And as I thought about that later, and I know that other parents in here are going, well, I've said that before. When I thought about it later, that is not great parenting and not great parenting advice. The motivation that I assigned to the act of her hitting her brother was to avoid being hit herself. You may say, well, that's not that big a deal. Actually, I think it is a huge deal. I think it can set her up for some bad habits in the future. If her only motivation for being kind to others, for treating people right, is selfish, is for what she won't get or will get in return from what she's done, I'm actually teaching her the exact opposite of this biblical principle. And I'm assigning blame to her for someone else's actions. If William hits her, it's not because she hit him first. It's because William hit her, and then that needs to be dealt with as well. But the parenting should have been, don't hit your brother because that's the right thing to do. Liv, don't hit your brother because you love him. Liv, don't hit your brother out of obedience for your mother and I. Or, or live, don't hit your brother because it's a poor reflection of, of Jesus in your life. The motive behind Matthew 7, 12 in our lives is never to be self-preservation. It's never to be avoiding pain for ourselves, selfishness, or any agenda or trying to gain something. The motive behind Matthew 7, 12, which separates it from all the others before it, is love. Period. It's love for God, and then love for the people that he created. Love for God, love for the people that he created. Utterly separate from their response. And utterly separate from their actions. Utterly separate from the way that they treat us. We are to do unto others not so that they will do unto us, but out of a response to the love of God. That's our motivation. Our motivation is love. Our motivation is not anything that we can gain. It is simply love. Love for God and then love for his creation. And if our motive for doing, any, for doing good is anything other than obedience to Christ, if our motive for doing good is anything other than our desire to reflect Christ to this world, then it's not a true fulfillment of Matthew 7, 12. Uh, the other difference, another difference, uh, goes hand in hand with this one. It has to do with how the principle is worded. Again, you just heard me say that almost every other example that we have of this golden rule is stated in the negative. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus states it in the positive. Jesus' statement is one of action. It's do these things. Don't just avoid these things. Do these things. 
And again, on the surface, this doesn't seem like a huge deal, but I think this is a subtle but powerful difference. The negative command is not nearly as demanding or challenging as the positive command. The command that Jesus gives to his disciples as the standard for relationships with other people, the standard of human interaction, is much harder to put into practice when it's positive, when it's action, when it's due, than it is when it's negative, which can come across as simply a void. You can fulfill the negative version. You can fulfill a list of do-nots without having any meaningful human interaction. There's a passivity in the negative form of this command. In fact, if you take the negative form of the command, this is where we get most of our laws from. This is the basis of the law. You can legislate against people doing to others what they don't want done to themselves. Robbing somebody's house, we don't want that done to ourselves. That's against the law. Murdering somebody, we don't want that done to ourselves. And that's against the law. In fact, this is one of the ways that we make a a fair society or attempt to make a fair society. But you can never legislate. You can never create laws to bring about what Jesus is teaching. You can't force people to care. You can't force people to love. You can't force people to ease the burdens of others voluntarily and within a relationship with them. Do unto others is active. Do unto others requires relationship. It requires interaction. You cannot carry out this command of Christ apart from people. The golden rule is meant to be practiced within community. It's meant to be practiced within relationship. The generous attitude of going out of your way to care for others in a way that you want to be cared for. You only do that if the kingdom of God burns in your heart. You only do that when you're loving people out of that motive of love for God and desiring for people to see Christ reflected in you. The negative form says, I must not harm people. That's the law. Jesus says, I must go out of my way to help them. That's grace. Again, that first part can be fulfilled with inaction. The second part can only be fulfilled by self-sacrificial love. Which leads to the next difference that we see in this. And I think another huge difference between them is that the one who gives this command, the one who states this command, also gives us a living example of this command, of this mandate. If this is a summary of the law, this is the full expression of the law, then we only need to look to the Gospels, and we need to look at the example that Jesus sets for us to see what this looks like practically. We can look and we can see how it is that Jesus lived this out, and then we can do that in our lives. I struggled in a huge way with the, uh, the WWJD movement. I don't know if you guys remember the what would Jesus do, the bracelets and the T-shirts and the hats and the bumper stickers. And the reason I struggled with it is because I believe that that movement was a, was a pretty big black eye on how people viewed Christianity. Because if you wear that bracelet, you are immediately 
identified, right or wrong, you're immediately identified as a follower of Christ. And I remember walking around some days and seeing people with these bracelets on and answering that question, what would Jesus do in my own mind? Not that. Definitely not that. You would see person after person that asked that question, what would Jesus do? And then it made absolutely zero impact on their life, on their thinking. I would rather see people just do what Jesus did. Don't ask the question. Don't get the free t-shirt. Don't wear the bracelet. I'd rather see you actually do it than advertise it and make absolutely no change to your life at all. Jesus gives us the example of how to do unto others. Confucius, who taught this principle as well, was not a perfect example. Buddha, who taught this principle, was not a perfect example. Mohammed, who taught this principle, was not a perfect example. Jesus Christ was and is. In fact, he's the very fulfillment that this golden rule sums up. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Remember, the law and the prophets, that's the entire Old Testament. Do not think that I've come to abolish them. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the embodiment of the very same law and prophets that are summed up in this principle. And so if you want to know what this actually looks like, how does this actually work in real-life situations, then you have to get to know Jesus. You have to go back to the Gospels, and you have to see the way that Jesus interacted with people. You have to look at the way that he treated the tax collectors. You have to look at the way that he interacted with uh, the Samaritan woman. Back then, men didn't talk to women. And back then, certainly, Jewish people did not talk to Samaritans. But you see Jesus living out this principle. You see it in the way that he interacted with lepers and those who were sick and those who needed a healing touch. You see it in the way that he interacted with children, the way that he played with kids. And if you're struggling to see it, if you're not seeing how this principle works in those interactions, then picture him hanging on a cross for you and for me. The embodiment, the picture of Matthew 7, 12 is Jesus on the cross. The picture of do unto others is Calvary. And this is what sets this principle apart from any others like it. Jesus didn't just say it. He lived it perfectly. And he's our example to follow. And the last thing that I want to look at and just take a few minutes here, and this is one really that every other sermon that I preach falls into this category, I think, on some level. But the practice of it, the practice. I've been struggling with sleep. Uh, quite a bit lately. Just I don't know if it's just getting old or what's going on, but I, I don't sleep well anymore. And the other night when I was up, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I went out to the couch um, so that my wife wasn't disturbed by me, and I began to scroll through videos on Facebook, which is not always a great idea. But after a few minutes of watching grown men and women fight while no one helps and everyone records, and watching people do the most immature stunts with absolutely no regard for whoever is around them. I had one thought 
what is wrong with people? That was the one thought I just kept thinking as I'm watching them and giving them views. But I just kept thinking, what is wrong with people? We are far more interested today in, in getting a laugh or getting someone to see us or, or, or just getting views on social media than we are about actually doing the right thing, than we are about actually doing unto others as we would have them do unto you. The world is a broken place. The world is a dark place. And what I'm seeing is that, by and large, we're raising a generation with no regard whatsoever for the people around them and caring for the people around them, whose only thought is, what can I get out of this life? And in my experience, and again, these are big, big, vast generalizations, but in my experience, a lot of Christians deal with this by pulling away further by standing back and judging, by creating these safe little bubbles within the walls of the church. But the truth is, there's only one solution to darkness, and that's light. And there's only one source of light, and that's Jesus Christ. And there's only one plan for that light to show itself in this dark world, and that's through you and through me. Matthew 5, 14, again, going back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men. Why? So they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. How do we shine our light in this world? How do we shine our light in a dark and broken world that desperately needs to see it? Do unto others. There's really no exception there. The Greek word that's used for in everything really means all of everything. It's all-encompassing. There's no circumstance, there's no person, there's no relationship, and we are not where we are not called to do unto others. And I think for too many Christians, our lights are dim and fading. Too many Christians, we don't grasp who we are in Jesus Christ and what we've been created for. The answer to what's wrong with people is they need Jesus. But how are they going to find him if they don't see him in us? If they don't see him in our lives? If they don't see him in this church? And this is another one. I wasn't going to go here today, and I know we still have communion to do, but if we go late today, it's Richard's fault. All right. How different would things look in this church? I think so many times, as Christians too, we can get this in our mind, okay, I'm supposed to do unto others, I'm supposed to do unto others, and we apply that only to when we go out of this place. I'm supposed to be kind of, well, I need to be kind of non-Christians, I need to be kind of those who still need to see Jesus. Absolutely. But the people in the church need to see Jesus in your life too. And think about it, the people that come into this place, first-time visitors, you walk into a place where you know nobody. You don't know what to expect. You don't know what's going to happen that morning. And so many of us who come here every single week, we come in and all we do is go find our friends. Or we go do this or we go do that. We don't come in with the thought, what can I do today to show someone the love of Jesus Christ? What can I do today to bless the love or to bless the life of someone else? 
When you walk into this place, you like this place, those that are church family, because you're known and you're accepted and you're loved. You walk in for the first time, you don't have those things. Where are they going to get it if we don't show that to them? This is a principle that applies in the church every bit as much as it does outside the church because it's a principle that is supposed to define who we are. It's supposed to be a part of our life. There's not supposed to be separation between in here and out there. But how are people going to see him? unless we're taking this principle seriously, unless we're doing unto others. It's not just a nice thought. It's not just a slogan for a t-shirt. This is supposed to be the purpose of our lives. This is supposed to be the guiding principle of our lives. This is what will transform our actions. All people want to be loved. All people want to be known. All people want to be heard and cared for. They want forgiveness, and they want mercy and grace, and they want acceptance. All of those are things that God has given freely to us and calls us in turn to give freely to others. We're to view our relationships. It's deeper than that. We're to view every human interaction through this lens. How would I want to be treated here? What would I love it if someone did for me in this situation? And then we're to act on that and we're to do it. Imagine a world where every follower of Jesus Christ lived to bless others. Not for what we can get out of it, but simply out of a response to the love of God, simply because it pleases God. There's no getting around this. This is action. This is the solution to this broken world. Christians who are willing to do unto others in all things, in any way that we possibly can, so that Christ can be seen in us. This sums up the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is, in reality, such a simple thought. It's such a simple thought that with each of my children, when they were little, they got it. They understood this. Do to others as you would have them do to you. But Lord, we struggle to put this into practice in our lives. We struggle to get outside of that thinking of just what's on our calendar, what's on our agenda, what do I need right now. We struggle to, uh, in humility, put others before ourselves. To love others as we love ourselves. And so, Lord, we ask that your Spirit would do a work in our lives. Because us trying to do this in our own strength and our own power is going to fail, and it's going to fail miserably. But by your Spirit, by your strength, we can love this world around us. By your Spirit, by your strength, we can do it with the right motives. And either, even when we make ourselves vulnerable, and even when we reach out to people, and that results in pain and hurt for us, we will continue to love. Because our motive is to please you. Our motive is to reflect you, regardless of the choices and actions of others. Lord, I pray that you would drive this truth deep into our hearts in Christ's name.